This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. This episode is brought to you by Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express Card. And we here on Savor are what you might call food explorers. It has been our actual job to go to cool places and eat, like, a lot of the food there. And then talk about it. And then talk about it into these microphones, which is a crazy dream job. Yes. Well, if you're like us and willing to travel to seek out new foods to try, you go with the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. It's for people like us who are in search of the next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota. Let's go places. Hello and welcome to Food Stuff. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we're talking about fried chicken, which I learned during our very first episode about champagne that Lauren has never had homemade fried chicken. I'm not from the South. I'm mm. from Ohio and Florida. But you've been in the South for like 12 years now. I somewhat someone the, the fault the fault is on my friends, friends. <laughs> if any of you I'm are listening to this. this. Yeah, oh yeah. man. Oh, that sounds lovely. I've got a bone to pick with your friends. <laughs> the fried chicken buns commence. <laughs> oh no. So soon. It also comes back full circle to the champagne and fried chicken. So yeah. Chicken, by the way, fried or not, is the most popular meat in the world. Yeah. Americans eat more than 80 pounds a year. Uh, and in 2014, business analysis cited fried chicken small chains as the fastest growing. Hmm. And in 2015, chicken entrees added 3% and reached 5.4 billion. And in the same report, the NDP, which is market research group, uh, describe chicken as, quote, a faster growing segment than burgers and fast food. Ooh. Yeah. An eater named 2016 the year of the fried chicken. <laughs> I also think that every year is like probably the year of fried chicken. Well, yeah, all that. But okay. also probably somebody called 2016 the year of the burger and somebody oh. else called it the year of this thing and this thing. I don't know. Maybe I'm cynical. Um, <laughs> part of the reason that chicken 2016 fried chicken was that year mm-hmm. uh, was because um, a lot of companies were trying to come up with the fried chicken version of the so-called fast casual category because for a long time there was fast food chicken or expensive fancy southern restaurant chicken fried chicken but nothing nothing in, in between really yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, and one of the reasons for that is it's relatively difficult to keep a, a consistent product Um and also relatively tricky to prepare because you can't have pink chicken. No. No, no. You, you can't cook your chicken medium. That's not a chicken thing. No. You can do that with beef, but not with chicken. No. And overcooked chicken is gross and <laughs> inedible. So you've got a very tiny window of what makes a good fried chicken. But when we say fried chicken, we're referring to probably a very specific thing. What right. What are we talking about? Uh 
being from the South, I think of American and particularly Southern take on fried chicken, which is usually bone in chicken dipped in seasoned flour or crumb breading. Usually, well, I don't know about usually, but it's often soaked in buttermilk or the like before. And then it can either be pan fried, deep fried, uh, pressure fried in oil. Oil can vary. Yes. Any type of liquid fat can be used technically. Several cultures around the world do have a totally different take on fried chicken. Um, some fry bone-free chicken pieces without flour or breading. I think it's pretty popular in mm-hmm. Asian countries. Um, or bone-in pieces that are braised after being fried. Um, I guess you could say like buffalo wings. Are technically fried chicken that just has a bunch of sauce. Yeah. It's not what I think of when I think of fried chicken, but it's... I'm sometimes surprised when buffalo wings show up and I'm like, oh, this is fried chicken. I have to remind myself that I just ordered fried chicken. Right. Um, I bake my buffalo the- wings. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's also the thing of uh, of battered fried chicken pieces, like like a like a tempura kind of battering or, mm-hmm. or um, like a tongue. It, it wouldn't be tonkatsu, would it? Because that's pork fried, but like, yeah. Similar. Yes. Yes. Man, I'm getting hungry already. I know. This is not a good sign. Um, <laughs> I almost wrote in the notes about four times, like, oh, I'm so hungry now. <laughs> and there's a hops chicken right downstairs that has really good fried chicken. We must resist. Uh, and then, and then, of course, yeah, you, you've got other American versions of fried chicken. You, you've, you've got chicken nuggets and chicken tenders and chicken fingers. Um, you can fry chicken into a cutlet. You can, you can <laughs> have very a, yeah, of you. <laughs> you've got fried chicken sandwiches and chicken biscuits. All those things. Plethora of ways to eat your fried chicken. Um, but why, why would you want to fry something anyway? Well, like scientifically, other than just it's delicious, um, uh, frying food has a few different benefits. Uh, first of all, it's quick. Um, so, okay, when you bake or boil something, the main thing that you use, that you're using to transfer heat from your cooking object to the food (laughs) is either water or air. Uh, cause you're boiling it in water and air is, is what's mostly transferring heat to, to food in an oven. Oils are better at transferring infrared radiation, aka heat, than water or air are, so the cooking happens faster. It is no coincidence that fast foods, fast food foods, yes, are, are <laughs> largely fried foods. Oh. It's pretty quick. Okay. I mean, otherwise, I mean, what, what are you doing? Like, 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 oh yeah, just hold on, your braised to order chicken is gonna be ready in, 55 minutes. I've totally always thought it was just because Americans like <laughs> unhealthy food and fried food is difficult to mess up. Um, it, it also, uh, frying deals with the steam that's coming out of cooking food in a, a really chemically awesome way. So, okay. You know how when you open your oven or a covered pan, you, you really don't want to put your face right there. <laughs> nope. Um, because of all the steam that's going to come out because Burn steam, your face. steam yeah. burns suck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that, that steam is water that's vaporizing out of the food that you're cooking, which it does when the water in the food that you're cooking reaches 212 degrees Fahrenheit, AKA a hundred degrees Celsius. When you fry something, that steam, that, that water vapor, is met with a wall of solid oil. As we all know, oil and water don't mix. So the steam that's coming out of the food actually holds the oil slightly at bay, which which prevents it from penetrating the food surface. This is part of why you really want to wait until oil is appropriately hot before you drop food in. That's going to lead to that greasy, soggy kind of kind of fry Ugh, that you get sometimes. That, no. It's the worst. No. Mm-hmm. Um, by the worst, I mean kind of delicious anyway. <laughs> Again, fried but, food, so good. It's so good. Fat is delicious. Oh, okay. Um, oh, uh, another thing about the steam here. Um, the steam coming out is only 212 degrees. Um, wow. The oil around it is much hotter. So the steam actually cools down the oil in the area immediately surrounding your food item. Um, this, plus that oil water thing that I just mentioned – prevents the oil from burning the surface of the food while the interior is cooking. That's pretty amazing, actually. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like, fry everything for science. <laughs> Just appreciate the amazingness that is right? that chicken tender you're stuffing into your face. 
<laughs> oh, uh, and, and, and speaking of the amazingness that is that chicken tender. Okay. So, uh, so frying foods makes them crispy on the outside because once most of the water has vaporized out of the kind of outer layer of your food and while simultaneously the interior, of, the interior of your food is just about at the correct temperature for you to do the thing where you put it in your face. Once most of that water is out, the slightly dehydrated surface starts coming into direct contact with the oil, with which just crisps it up all, all beautifully. Speaking of crispy, let's crisp up our history. <laughs> what a great segue. <laughs> let's step back a bit. An enormous way back bit. Yeah, um, not a little bit. No, big bit. The chicken is thought to have been di- domesticated in Southeast Asia sometime between 7,500 and 5,000 BCE. Because of that whole crowing at daybreak thing, mm-hmm. chickens were sometimes believed to have the ability to see into the future. Oh, man. And that's one of the reasons experts think that chickens were domesticated, probably. Because uh, because they were thought to be divine and too divine to eat. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Yep. But as the chickens were traded... Some cultures accepted the chicken's rep as a a divine creature, and others dismissed it, using chickens in all kinds of things, like cockfighting, entertainment, Mm -hmm. eating them, sacrificing them to gods, that kind of stuff. All (laughs) the things that you can do with chickens. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, But it wasn't long before cooking and eating chicken became the standard, never mind their morning predicting abilities. (laughs) Uh, at first, fried chicken was often relegated to royalty and aristocracy. And, uh, just a note, they were, they were using older hens that were, um, fried and then braised. So not quite how most of us in the West, again, anyway, think of fried chicken. Mm-hmm. But over time, it made its way to a much wider audience, including Africa, Great Britain, and the U.S. And then the, 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 the braising liquid, I believe, was often a cream sauce of some kind. Yeah. Yeah. According to foodtimeline.org, um, part of the difficulty in tracing the history of fried foods lies partly in the word fried because, as is the case with so many things Lauren and I talk about, <laughs> um, it has evolved and it's gone through or gone by many different names. And deep fried didn't appear in written form. Until the 1930s. But cookbooks were describing deep frying processes before then. Um, like a, one example that foodtimeline.org gave was the Boston Cooking School Cookbook of 1884. Um, <laughs> furthermore, uh, a recipe for like non-dredged pan or oven fried chicken appears in a book that I didn't check the n- pronunciation of. I believe it's a Piscius. I'll go with that. I'm yeah. gonna, I'm gonna go with it. Yeah. Uh, Apicius, uh, which is a cookbook from Rome thought to have been collected around 500 to 600 BCE. Um, the, the spices that go into it involve dill and coriander, which are totally what you fry, like spices that I would associate with fried chicken these days, which is crazy to me. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, that sounds like a, like it's halfway to like the Chick-fil-A fried chicken recipe. Yeah, it really does. Chickens may not be native to Africa, but as early as 1400 BCE, chickens were in Egypt and they became pretty common in West and Central Africa after that, in part because they were one of the few livestock that the dreaded tsetse fly did not target. Oh, Uh uh-huh. Cool. Uh, the association with spirituality continued. Mm-hmm. Um, eggs were used in religious ceremonies. The chicken itself was the most commonly sacrificed animal. Um, chickens grew to become a pretty common ingredient in West African cuisine, and it wasn't long before fried chicken pieces started showing up in homes and markets. If we look at Europe, one of the first written recipes of Western, typically thought of as, quote, American-style fried chicken, appeared in a 1747 British cookbook written by Hannah Glass titled The Art of Cookery Made Plain and Easy. Oh, plain and easy. I love cookery, too. (laughs) The recipe called for coating pieces of chicken in flour and frying it in hog's lard. Oh, yeah. This was already the preferred method of the Scottish, as opposed to the English who pretty much just boiled or baked it. The Scottish are also thought to be the first Europeans to fry chicken, but they differed from West African take because they didn't use any spices. 
in the batter they put on the chicken. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the recipe was called, quote, to marinate chicken. Simple to the point. And the book itself was a hit in both Europe and the United States. Battered fried chicken recipes, meanwhile, started popping up uh, around the late 1830s in Southern American cookbooks. Right. And the term Southern fried chicken didn't pop up in writing until 1925. But frying chicken in the South had a long history before that. And there are a couple of ways fried chicken may have become this Southern thing. And here we come to Foodstuff's patented food sadness part of the episode. Yes. Welcome to be depressed about a food that you love. Yes. (laughs) You knew it was coming. So the arrival of West African slaves to the South is one way Southern fried chicken could have originated. Uh, Slaves were allowed to keep chickens. Which is unusual. They usually, they generally were not allowed to possess farm animals or Anything really. Yeah. And the the reason they were allowed to keep chickens is because um, they could serve as an alarm. And also white people just didn't want them. Yeah. It, it, was, a food so- it, it was a food source that white people didn't care about. Yeah. Exactly. Slaves could in some cases raise these chickens and possibly sell them to their owners or other slave owners. According to World of a Slave Encyclopedia of the Material Life of Slaves in the United States, there are records dating back to the 1730s of travelers mentioning in writing that slaves were selling chicken in Carolina Low Country. The raising and selling of chickens was one of the only ways for African Americans to accumulate any money or items. Like other, other material. Yeah. Not, not wealth, but, uh, yeah. stuff. Yeah. Uh, Basic stuff. And the chicken business was pretty much run by black people, and thus it was associated with black people. And the cooking of chicken was in particular associated with black women because they were the ones who usually who were doing it. Right. Right. Um, And black women would sometimes sell their cooked, often fried chicken at train stations. There are records of describing black women, quote, waiter carriers. Uh, who served fried chicken to white passengers on trains. Uh, and in some cases, black female slaves left, left recipes behind, including in Abby Fisher's 1881 book, What Miss Fisher Knows About Old Southern Cooking, <laughs> which is thought to be the first cookbook published by an African-American. Aside from being just an amazing title. I know. For a cookbook. I've I've enjoyed all the titles of cookbooks so far. Yeah, not a whole lot of duds. <laughs> and you knew we couldn't do this episode without talking about awful stereotypes. Yay. Okay, oh, here we go. Because fried chicken was so closely associated with black people, even though they themselves didn't eat that much of it because the ingredients outside of at, the chicken. At the time where, yeah, yeah, getting that much cooking oil. Was expensive. Sure. Mm-hmm. Even though it is a rather economical use for cooking oil, assuming that you don't burn the oil, you can reuse it. But Right. You also need the flour. But you need the flour. You need the, yeah. Whatever spices, spices you're because, using. Uh, spices spices are very pricey. Yes. Yeah. Um, and white people used it as an excuse to say and write and draw terrible things. Really terrible things. Yeah. Really awful. Good job, history. Mm-hmm. Uh, black people were negatively depicted as chicken thieves primarily, but also chicken fryers and eaters. And this continued into the 19th century as another way to keep newly freed slaves from integrating. And the stereotype is still around to this day. Yep, it is. It is. Uh, because people could could really stand to do better. Yeah, they could. I myself went to an event not at my the university I attended, but a different university. I won't name it. But they it was Black History Month and they were serving like fried chicken and great. Gatorade. What is it? It's grape Kool-Aid. Oh, grape Kool-Aid. And mm-hmm. watermelon. And I was like, this is not a thing. This is not. I want to be participate at. in. I yeah. Want to. <laughs> I need to go somewhere else right now. And another interesting note, um, West African slaves also brought with them the chickens association with spirituality. Mm-hmm. And it's not uncommon to find piles of chicken bones or chicken remains buried around plantations in ways that harken back to those spiritual traditions. 
And kind of from this, the chicken was christened the preacher's bird, mm-hmm. in quotes. That was what it was called. And um, the chicken in some form or another was frequently served at Sunday family get-togethers or celebrations, in part because it was easy to transport. Uh, and to this day, I frequently see fried chicken dinners um, or brunches on Sundays, usually served communal style. Absolutely. It's so. pretty certainly common around Atlanta. So that's one way. Fried chicken in the South might have become kind of synonymous. Mm-hmm. Uh, another way has to do with Scotland, an accent I'm not even going to try. <laughs> oh, me me neither. Not today. I'm nope. unprepared. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a whole... Oh. <laughs> Weeks. Yeah. That- <laughs> you need to bring in a coach. Maybe we should invest in that. But yeah, uh, Scotland, because as, as we said above, um, the Scottish may have been the first Europeans who were frying chicken. Um, in a vaguely similar way to the West African tradition, although right. with fewer spices in the, uh, in the breading. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they may have, when, when Scottish immigrants arrived in the American South, they may have brought their recipes for frying chicken along with them. Um, but hey, another depressing note. Yay. Uh, uh, fried chicken also had its cultural stigma in Scotland back, back home. Um, it was associated with poor people who could not afford beef or pork. Oh. You know, when I, was first researching this, um, there was a lot of, uh, like search results that were, who bought, uh, chicken, fried chicken to the South? Was it Scottish immigrants or West African slaves? And I was curious about if it was Scottish immigrants, why was it the South? Right. And then a lot of people were saying, and I have heard this, that the thieves and less, uh, what's the word for that? Desirable. Less, oh, I mean, less it, I mean, savory? I'm not saying it. Uh, yeah, history yeah. is saying it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Went to the South and I know, huh. I have a friend who, um, she claims that her family was, uh, sent to the South for stealing chickens in Scotland. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. I don't, huh. so I wasn't able to find uh, too much truth in that. I also didn't have much time to spend on it because I feel like a lot of these episodes, they lead into all these paths. And I'm like, now oh. I want to learn everything about the chicken being divine. Yeah. I'm like, no, we're, this no, is we're, fried chicken. We can do another episode about divine chickens. <laughs> yes. Some well-known Southerners also helped popular, popularize fried chicken as, as like a general pop culture thing. Right. Uh, one of the first mentions of fried chicken in the U.S. came from the 1700s diary, and I find this adorable that he wrote about it in his diary, of governor of the Virginia colony, William Byrd. Byrd joke. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> you had to I do it. I didn't I have know. a good one. I just wanted to say it. No, I understand. In 1824, <laughs> Martha Rudolph, who was related in law to Thomas Jefferson, published a popular cookbook with a nearly identical fried chicken recipe to Hannah Glass's aforementioned recipe called the Virginia Housewife. So so it was the thing that was going around. It was. And it was popular, uh, especially on Sundays, as like the fancy dinner, mm-hmm. especially in the upper class of the South. And then around 1878, the first written instance of Maryland fried chicken, which is something I had never heard of before, uh, it's fried chicken served with a sauce? With like a gravy. It's, it's a gravy type thing. Okay. It's a chicken and gravy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it appeared on a menu in Saratoga, New York's Grand Union Hotel. Ah. Mm-hmm. And that's generally what we think is why Southern fried chicken is a thing, why fried chicken is associated with the South. And, uh, that brings us to the next step in fried chicken's timeline. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. This episode is brought to you by Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express Card. 
And we are what you might call food explorers. We are so lucky that a part of our job involves traveling and trying a lot of the food where we go to travel and then coming back here and telling all of you good listeners about it. And through that, we have discovered some amazing dishes. Sure, yes. Like, I had never understood what poke really could be, and it is delightful. It is stunningly good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which we had a lot of on our trip to Hawaii. Uh, another thing from their passion fruit I now look for in literally every menu that I read. I'm like, yep, that one has passion fruit. Going for it. And then all of the moles, and especially the green mole that you heard us talk about recently that we had from in Las Vegas. In Vegas, yeah. Oh, or just steak basements. Who doesn't love a steak basement? Exactly. <laughs> well, um, if you are like us and you're willing to travel to seek out new foods to try, you go with the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. It's for people who, like us, are in search of the next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Apple Park. Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. And we're back. Thank you so much, sponsor. Uh, so yeah, still more history. Right. Fast food chains. Mm -hmm. <laughs> how how did how did this how did this happen? It happened with, as with many things, uh, advancing in technology because fried uh, fast food, chicken fried or otherwise, was not really a thing we could do until chicken farming technology <laughs> improved, uh, making chicken farming easier, cheaper, and that made fried chicken uh, less of a special Sunday meal to more of a something that could be enjoyed cheaply, relatively quickly. And more often. Oh, it just occurred to me that, that all this like improvement technology is improved, certainly improvement for us. It's probably definitely not improvement for the chickens and it's probably oh, led not. to the really terrible conditions that chickens are kept in these days, mm -hmm. which I guess we should spend a depressing episode talking about. Uh, but that's not this episode. Nope. That's a later date. Yay. <laughs> all these advancements did not immediately equal fast food. It still took about 20 minutes to fry some chicken, which that yeah, that would not fly. By oh no, not not enough fast food. No standards. It's like more than thirty-two seconds. But with some innovation, methods of frying large amounts of chicken and keeping the fried chicken pieces warm and crisp were invented. And one of these fried chicken innovators was Colonel Harlan Sanders. Harlan Sanders, you yes. say? But yeah, so Colonel Stan Colonel Sanders, um, the actual Colonel Sanders, uh, he he started. Franchising Kentucky Fried Chicken in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And that success led to the introduction of a bunch of other fried fried chicken fast food places. Uh, Harold's Chicken Shack, Church's, Popeye, Bojangles, Chick-fil-A. Um, in fact, one of the founders of Bojangles, Richard Thomas, started out owning and operating KFC franchises and mm -hmm. would eventually become the president of operations for the entire chain. Interesting. However, this this boom of fried chicken in the 1960s following KFC could not be maintained. And um, all these strange little, little, uh, little small regional franchises, a lot of them had a, a, a pop star, either a, a black or white pop star, lend their name to them. Um, mm. Minnie Pearl, James Brown, Mahalia Jackson. Um, but all of these franchises would kind of boom and then bust by the 1970s. Hmm. Did not know that. Kind of reminds me of Gladys Knight's chicken and waffles. Oh, yeah, that one, too. Oh, I knew I was missing one. <laughs> That's the big one. I Midnight know. Midnight Georgia. I Lauren. I'm sorry, Gladys. I didn't mean it. <laughs> She's 
we're going to get a letter in the mail. <laughs> we got to talk about Colonel Sanders. Oh, yeah. He was he was a really fascinating human person. Right. And in case anyone doesn't know this, I feel like a lot of people do. He was a Kentucky colonel, not like a actual army colonel. Oh, army colonel. Right. Totally separate thing. <laughs> yes, very different. Uh, in his early life, he was a lawyer before... He got into a fight with his own client in the courtroom. So end of career there. Uh, (laughs) He was involved in a shootout with a competitor of his first restaurant after the competitor repainted a gas station sign advertising for Colonel Sanders restaurant to redirect traffic to the competitor's restaurant. And that was a shootout? situation he was like what should happen now is a shootout yeah okay (laughs) the competitor uh hit the guy sanders was with who was sanders boss uh and killed him and was convicted of murder oh my goodness yeah and sanders remained the symbol and spokesperson for kfc even after he sold it in 1964 and he would do spot checks at kfc's around the country and if he found the food lacking He'd tell the owner of the KFC that he was visiting something along the lines of the food was, quote, God slop. (laughs) (laughs) And he went on to sue the then parent company of KFC, Hoobline Incorporated, um, over misuse of his likeness and selling stuff that he didn't have or want to have (laughs) any part of. He also really did not like that they moved the headquarters out of Kentucky. Oh. No, really made him mad. Yeah. Um, well, it's not Kentucky Fried Chicken anymore no. at that point. Hoobline Inc. countersued in 1975, alleging libel after Sanders publicly described KFC's gravy as, quote, sludge with a, quote, wallpaper taste. Oh. <laughs> and that it, quote, Ain't fit for my dogs. Hoobline lost the case. Man. Sanders was sued again by Hoobline after he and his wife reopened their Shelbyville location restaurant under the name Claudia Sanders Dinner House, which you can still visit to this day. And they were talking about the possibility of franchising it. KFC. Hence, hence the suit. Yep. Sure. Hoobline was like, no way. Sanders settled. Uh, and I, he's just such an interesting character. He's often used as like an example of a small businessman who really struggled and then succeeded because apparently he was always on the brink of total destitution. Huh. Uh, and I want to thank Stuff You Should Know for turning me on to this. Oh, those yeah. are those are pretty okay guys. Yeah. Yeah. If you guys okay. if you guys don't listen to Stuff You Should Know, probably every single one of you does. But Yeah, that's probably why you're here why you're right here. now. Yeah. And KFC is hugely popular outside of the US. It's familiarized people the world over with American-style-ish fried chicken. And as someone who travels a lot, the fast food chains I generally see the most of are KFC and Subway and what I call Stealthy McDonald's. Stealthy McDonald's? Yeah. They're, like, made to look really fancy. Oh. And they say, like, McCafe outside. Oh, okay. They uh-huh. don't have the yellow arches. Oh, weird. When you go in and it's, it's totally It's totally McDonald's. McDonald's? Yeah. Huh. How strange. Yeah. Um, uh, uh. It should be mentioned here that other than the founder of Harold's Chicken Shack, who is Harold Pierce, all of the entrepreneurs who opened the surviving fried chicken franchises were white dudes. Which, you know, it's not unexpected, but perhaps strange. Is that an okay word for it? Uh, Strange being that it's this food associated with black women specifically. And yeah, yeah, sure. Um, But... There is a story about one of the failed chains from the late 1960s and early 1970s that is really strangely hopeful. Um, it's the one that Mahalia Jackson lent her name to. And Jackson, if you're unfamiliar, was a gospel singer and activist who moved to Chicago from the South and worked alongside Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, the, the restaurants in her name were owned and operated entirely by black people and and really provided opportunities in their communities. The the chain's co-founder, Benjamin Hooks, was a lawyer and eventually a judge who would go on to lead the NAACP for, oh. for like a couple decades almost. Um, th- there's a really, really beautiful piece about all of this in Gravy, which is the magazine of the Southern Foodways Alliance, which is all around awesome. Yeah. Um, Gravy is also a podcast, by the way. If you haven't listened to it, go check that out because they do amazing stories all the time. 
Nice. Yeah. The availability and popularity of fried chicken at fast food restaurants spurned all of these new takes on fried chicken, especially when it comes to pairing it with something you wouldn't traditionally pair it with, like sweet waffles, chicken and waffles, Mm -hmm. or champagne. Yes. I know we've said it before. We'll say it again. Also, this was in the article I was reading. So it's not just us. It's not just us. Red hot chicken. That's like crazy popular right now. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or Nashville style, yeah. which I still don't think is technically a thing, but in Nashville, but it's, it's delicious. Uh, there's North Carolina style and then all kinds of international flavors that are getting popularity here in the United States. Mm-hmm. I, I, okay. Look, y'all, I, I started delving into all of the health hubbub. Surrounding fried foods. Yeah. So that we could do a health section in mm-hmm. this, in this, our podcast episode. Um, but it's, it's really going to need to be its own episode. Uh, there is so much debate and research going into how different types of oils react to different cooking temperatures and, and what compounds they then release. I, in a brief summary way, <laughs> can tell you, like, basically, don't, don't eat hella fried foods all the time. Mm-hmm. But also don't stress out about it. This reminds me of in high school, I had to come up with a diet. It was part of our health class. <laughs> and my diet was, uh, I don't remember what I called it, but the slogan was eat in moderation or face obliteration. Cause I was <laughs> clever that way. And essentially that's what we say in a lot of these things. Yeah. Yeah. Like fat isn't terrible. Yeah. Just, just go easy. Yeah, you know? Yeah. You know. Moderate yourself. Yeah. Um, but if you're choosing for, you know, today to not be the day that you're moderating yourself, we've got a few tips for you on uh, how to best do that at home. But first, we're going to take one more break for a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. This episode is brought to you by Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. And we are what you might call food explorers. We are so lucky that a part of our job involves traveling and trying a lot of the food where we go to travel and then coming back here and telling all of you good listeners about it. And through that, we have discovered some amazing dishes. Sure, yes. Like, I had never understood what poke really could be, and it is delightful. It is is stunningly good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which we had a lot of on our trip to Hawaii. Uh, another thing from their passion fruit I now look for in literally every menu that I read. I'm like, yep, that one has passion fruit. Going for it. And then all of the moles, and especially the green mole that you heard us talk about recently that we had from in Las Vegas. In Vegas, yeah. Oh, or just steak basements. Who doesn't love a steak basement? Exactly. Well, um, if you are like us and you're willing to travel to seek out new foods to try, you go with the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. It's for people who, like us, are in search of the next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billy's vocals. It was automatic art. You know, I had to, like, choose a more challenging route than just, like, da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like, it could have been, like, easier. And a lot of people have asked me, like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and, like, so simple? And what else was it going to—like, that's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury— with a reveal unlike any other as infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 infinity qx80 join us march 20th live from the edge at hudson yards in new york city featuring an unforgettable performance by grammy and academy award-winning singer songwriter and composer john batiste the all-new infinity qx80 is unlike any luxury suv you've ever seen smart enough to anticipate your needs even before you do 
Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So some tips for cooking at home, which I am delighted that Lauren wrote, even though she's never done it. There are lots of professionals out there who have written really good things about it. Uh, I, I totally, I totally believe you. I, and and they all check out from the science point of view. Okay. 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 No, I want, I want to get your perspective on it. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Uh, <laughs> tell me, t- tell me if I'm leading people. No, wrong. no. I, <laughs> okay. Uh, first of all, you're going to want a cast iron skillet or perhaps a Dutch oven because the iron in either of those kind of objects is going to keep its temperature better than other materials like a, like aluminum or something like that. Right. Yeah. And that temperature is key. Yes. Uh, you're also going to want to use a probe thermometer to keep the oil at the correct temperature. Hmm. That is true. I've always just put flour in there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, how, how, how does that work? If it sizzles, then it's mm-hmm. that it's the right temperature? Yeah, like sizzles and makes this little... Little dough, dough, dough ball? Yeah. Okay. Next, I mean, perhaps obviously use the best quality chicken that you can find and or afford. Uh, you know, check the ingredients label for things other than chicken. Yeah. Which sounds obvious, but some packaged meats uh, have flavor added, which generally is not a good sign. Um, however, I mean, don't feel bad if that's what you've got to work with. Yeah. Eat food. Food's great. Yep. Um, you're also going to want to get yourself some neutral flavored oil like canola to, um, to, to, to use for frying. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wouldn't not suggest lard, but I've heard Crisco uh, is a, is a popular one, but, um, but you know, uh, yeah, neutral flavored so that the natural chicken flavors really come through. Really shines through. Yeah. Especially if you've got the good chicken. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Especially then. A step that I have seen, uh, a proposed, Strongly is to brine the chicken overnight. Mm. Is this an important one? Okay, she's well, smiling. Well, it, it depends. There's, oh, oh, mm-hmm. are there schools of thought? There are schools of thought. Oh goodness, this also comes up when it comes to turkey. Yeah, Thanksgiving time. Okay, well, okay. Uh, the the proponents that I've seen for brining say, you know, basically brining will make the finished product juicier and more tender because the meat absorbs some of that that salty liquid. Um, and salt, um, denatures proteins. Proteins, you know, are, are big folded up messes of molecules, like, like necklaces that have somehow merged while sitting in your jewelry box or, um, or, or like a bit of string after your, your cat or your child has gotten to it. Um, <laughs> and salt relaxes some proteins, which makes muscle fibers less tough and lets water molecules move in and hang out, meaning that the, uh, the cooked meat will have more moisture and, and be more tender. Mm. <laughs> um, oh man, the fa- the face that Annie is making at me is real doubtful, though. Um, no, 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 no. I actually think that this is um, the pendulum is swinging towards this side of the argument mm-hmm. that brining is the way to go, and it does really help. I personally never do it because I don't have time. Oh but, yeah, uh, oh, everybody's typing away. <laughs> it doesn't take that long, Annie. <laughs> Well, I mean, to, to be fair, to to make a brine, it, it it does take a little bit of time because you're for for a good basic brine, you're going to take like four cups of water, a half a cup of sugar for for chicken. I've heard sugar yes. is a good addition, um, and about a fourth cup of salt. You bring it all to a boil and stir so that it dissolves. Then allow it to cool completely before you put your chicken in it. Um, and then let it soak overnight for like twelve hours at least in the fridge. And so that's so that's like a that is a whole process. Yeah. Usually when I'm making fried chicken, I'm making it so fast before I can convince myself that I really <laughs> should be eating something healthier. I don't need any time for me to change my mind. I do believe I should do a brining taste test. I think that it probably does. Ooh, taste test. Yeah. Here's our taste test of the episode. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> More advice. Uh if you're dredging it in buttermilk before you uh, apply the, the 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 breading flour coating, mm-hmm. um, then then use a really thin dredge. I don't know. That's a thing I read. <laughs> I will believe it. That is also something I don't do. I have done it 
again when I have like more time, my mom. Okay, my mom does it. Yeah, oh, and okay. it does. It's good when you're when you're frying. Um, the amount of oil that you should put in the pan is about like half to three quarters of an inch, which is like one point three to one point nine centimeters. Um, and the oil temperature should be three hundred and twenty five degrees Fahrenheit. AKA 163 degrees Celsius, if you're measuring it. My mom, um, her number one tip when I first tried to make fried chicken on my own was that make sure it's hot enough and don't overcrowd the pan. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's definitely a thing that I read about. Um, that you should cook in batches that you don't overcrowd the pan because doing so brings down the temperature of the oil more than you want, mm-hmm. which will lead to that, to that greasy chicken. The, the, the steam action that I mentioned at the top of the show won't be able to do its thing. Oh no. Yeah. No greasy chicken. Don't do it. <laughs> um, and then that you should serve it immediately or transfer it to an oven, like just below boiling point like like 200 degrees fahrenheit something like that like 93 degrees celsius thereabouts mm-hmm. um to keep it warm and crisp this is a much fancier way of doing it than me and i don't mean that in a, a bad way at all now because fried chicken like i said is one of my favorite things yeah so i wonder if i did this if there would be a whole nother world of of like flavor oh. explosion oh, yeah man. or maybe maybe they're both equally delicious yeah I mean, at the end of the day, you're frying something that's tasty right. and then you're eating it. That's <laughs> true. Uh, and I think that that just about wraps up everything that we have to say about fried chicken. But let us turn for a moment to some listener mail. Y'all, y'all write stuff in. It's great. Yeah, we love it. So Veronica wrote in to say, first and foremost, I absolutely love your podcast, especially the puns. Yay. Yes. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you, Veronica. Okay. Uh, back to Veronica. I'm from San Antonio, Texas, and I remember the Nighthawk frozen dinners. They came in a boring brown box and were not superhero worthy at all. I had no idea they were Texas based, but I remember eating the mini frozen dinners at grandma's house. I even remember eating the half frozen steak. We didn't have a great microwave and soggy tater tots. I can't believe I liked those, but you definitely brought up a nice childhood memory. I look forward to your next episode. (laughs) Thank you, Veronica. (laughs) That's wonderful. I was so, ah, oh, man, those, those Nighthawks. Yeah. Too bad. <laughs> they don't live up to the superhero. Standard. Name. Skybird elevated herself to hero status in my book by sending in this. <laughs> she wrote, in the unsweetened history and tech of sugar, Annie mentioned trying a dessert called peanut butter ice gravel and searching for it again for years. Yes, I did. Back to Skybird. <laughs> well, look no further. Yes, it is called Bingsha, which does translate to ice sand, but it's really a cross between a smoothie and a frap. Note the Chinese do call sugar shatang, uh, with the first character often referring to gravel, but a better translation for the term is granulated sugar. Hmm. And the recipe is as followed. <gasps> She sent a recipe. She did. I know. Ah. I was so happy. I like, I jumped out of my chair. <laughs> Two tablespoons of peanut butter, one cup ice, one tablespoon white sugar, half a cup fresh milk, condensed milk to taste. Throw it all in a blender and blend until the ice crystals disappear. So, ah, easy. Back to Skybird. There's really not actually that much sugar in this dessert. So enjoy it to your heart's content. I do recommend looking for this dessert in Hong Kong or Taiwan restaurants because their restaurant versions are giant and extravagant. Mm. I will enjoy this to my heart's content. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Skybird for sending me this. <laughs> oh, we should do a video. We should do a little, a little video for social. Oh, it's going to bring back so many memories <laughs> of my time in China. Oh, that's it's so exciting. Be great. Oh, I can't wait to taste it. <laughs> Ooh. Oh man. Also congrats to Amanda and Elizabeth who answered the pizza bonus call when it comes to yogurt. That was actually something we talked about in our frozen food episode. Because of the way recording and publishing schedules work. Very bizarre. Yeah. But they both sent two different recipes for pizza involving yogurt, which is awesome. Oh, man. Yeah. It was both in the um, dough. Like, oh, yeah, using the whey. Oh, I get it. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. I know. I was like, how could, how could this have eluded us? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you both. If you would like to email us, Recipes or ideas or anything else, we have an email address at foodstuff at howstuffworks.com. Yes, we also have a couple social media accounts. You can find us on Twitter. Our address there is at foodstuffhsw. stands for How Stuff Works, the company that owns us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also on Instagram. Our handle there is just at foodstuff. 
we hope to hear from you because hearing from you so far has been extremely lovely. It really has. Mm-hmm. Um, and you will hear from us again sometime soon. We hope that many more good things in the meanwhile are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. 